And thank you guys for showing up this morning. Um, if you were here, I think, um, was anybody not here last night to hear Mike's talk um, on the, uh, really, the sufficiency of the Word for, for the people of God, for the church? And so I was looking at his topic and looking at my topic and realizing, no, they're really the same topic. <laughs> and so I had visions of just coming in here and going, you know, whatever he said, because that was, that was really good last night. Um, but I thought that I could take uh, what, what he said, and let me just remind you of that, is how that the Word of God um, is, is intended by God to form the people of God and then to grow the people of God. And so, and when you recognize that the Word of God, the hero of the Word of God is Jesus, what would you expect for the forming and growing of the people to look like, to look like Jesus? And that really is, is what, the, what the goal is. Now, one of the passages that he appealed to, 2 Timothy chapter 3, um, at the end of that, is the text that I want to expand on this morning for a little bit. So you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles there. But the context of the letters that Paul wrote to Timothy um, have a lot to do with the context of your church and my church, which is obviously why the Spirit of God directed Paul to write those letters to Timothy. And so just by just brief reminder, Paul sent Timothy to Ephesus. Ephesus had been... Um, obviously a just critical church and you look at even in the letters that to the seven churches and in, in Ephesus is right there at the gate the get-go because it was such a critical church that had such influence on the other churches um, even in Acts chapter 20 when Paul is on his way back to Jerusalem where he knows his life is basically probably going to come to an end as he knows it. Um, he meets with the leaders of the elders of the church of Ephesus and gives and admonishes them. They, they, are, they are very near and dear to his heart. So when things start going sideways a little bit in the church of Ephesus, he sends Timothy to Ephesus to get some things in order. And he also follows that up with 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, because that church, Ephesus of all places, such a critical church, is already experiencing conflict. And so you look at what were some of the things that Paul addresses in those letters, and it really can be summarized by a couple of things. Um, guys who are in it, people who are in it for personal gain. And... And that happens not just in terms of the, 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 the people who want to stand behind a lectern or stand behind a pulpit. It happens for people who want to um, get into particular positions. And then when that climate is pervasive in a church, then you see that echoed even in the lives of the people. 
So some, I'm, I'm assuming that most of you have seen church life where the congregation is attempting to manipulate the leader by saying, here's what we want you to do, um, here's what we want you to say, here's how, how I want you to accomplish things. I want you to do things my way. And if you don't do things my way, we will get rid of you and bring in somebody else who will do things my way. And uh, they're, they're trying to manipulate the system to get what they want. That's personal gain. On the, on the other hand, you certainly have guys who are in the pulpit who are attempting to manipulate the people for personal gain. Um, trying to say, well, you know, I, I, I can't lose my job because this is the only means by which I can support myself. Or trying to use the people. I am going to do something in an effort to make myself look good, to establish some kind of reputation, to um, just satisfy some kind of ego needs. So whatever that is, um, whether it's the leaders or whether the people who are being motivated by personal gain, then what happens is that decisions are made on the basis of pragmatism. So if we can figure out how to get a desired result and we don't really care the means by which we do that, well then that drives our decision making. And so when you have, when you don't have biblical principles that are driving your decision making, then you are going to just resort to either worldly methods um, or you are going to rely upon, you know, which we know is you know, everybody taking a poll, finding out what is the path of least resistance. And, and when you look at the motivation of personal gain driven by the pragmatism that always comes in, which is your philosophy, the end justifies the means, then what you end up having, I mean, that's what prosperity theology is. It's, it's even, if it's, even if it's not explicitly stated, that is the functional doctrine of the church. You have leadership that wants to be prosperous. You have people who want to be happy. They want to get what they want out of the situation. And so, this is chaos. So, this describes my early years of pastoral ministry. I was serving in a context where the end justified the means, whatever we could do to get a crowd. And whoever had the deepest pockets, we dared not offend them. You had to have them. And so, what is the functional authority of the church? It's not the Word. It, it was... It was what was going to work? 
And so, I observed a ministry that was driven by a presentation, whether it was musically or whether it was preaching, that was designed to make people happy and not to offend in any way. I, I, I listened to sermons for, for several years in that setting where there was absolutely no application. It was just all information because application would offend. It would perhaps drive people away, and we could, we could not do that. In that setting, I, I was a youth pastor, and I watched the life of my kids basically get sucked right out of them because of situations in the congregation where sin was absolutely unaddressed. I mean, there was just blatant stuff that was taking place. And I mean, I, I, I watched people basically dare the leadership to, to do anything. And nothing was, nothing was done. And it, was, it, was, and, and it be, you know, became a situation where I just I could not stay because of that. And then I went into another situation that honestly was not a whole lot better um, and had been there for about a year or so um, when a leadership crisis became public. The leadership crisis had been going on for a while and... Um, exposed there, there were there were these two things that were that were going on and but the way in which it was being managed and uh behind the scenes all came out and when it blew up it was it was ugly and uh i watched a thousand people walk out the doors in three weeks and i mean you can imagine the carnage that was that was left so as a young man um, I'm thinking, okay, there's got to be a better way of of leading the church. I don't, I don't know what I know what not to do. I'm not exactly sure what to do. And so, one of the convictions that God in His grace had had allowed me to have because of the influence of an example, honestly, of guys back in the day like John MacArthur, and uh, and and in those days Chuck Swindoll. They were one of the few guys publicly who were just taking the Bible, opening it up, starting at the beginning of a book and working through the end of the book. I had never seen that before in my life. And yet there was something about just the, the plain, clear teaching of the Bible that was, that was beautiful. It was compelling. And of course, one of the things is, is that when you, uh, when, when you hear a text being preached within the context, it's like, wow, that's what that means. It helps, it helps you read your Bible better. And so I became convinced of the value of expositional preaching just on the basis of my own personal experience from it. And 
over time, I began to realize how that is a God-given method for the health of the church. And so my convictions about the benefits of expositional preaching for the health of the church grew over time. And as Mike said last night, then I began to see some of the offshoots of that and to realize it's not just expositional preaching. It's, it's how the Word then becomes central to the entire life of a congregation. So, I was um, in a church plant uh, a few weeks ago, a friend of mine planning a church, and, um, and it's one of those settings where uh, renting space in a YMCA, and, um, you know, that literally down the hall, people are working out on treadmills and that kind of stuff. And uh, here you are in, in, this, in this room meeting, and then and this one room over here, this is where the children's ministry is. You know, from from nursery through you know third grade or whatever. You know, and, and you're just you're just making you're making do, doing what 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 you can. And um, so, in terms of organization, and in terms of facilities, and in terms of all of the accoutrements that we think, oh, you know, that's what a church really needs to have in order to be successful. Pretty much none of that is there. All right, but what is there is is the word. And his brother is just faithfully preaching the word. And the Lord has used that faithful preaching of the word to draw a people to himself. They're not being drawn by the facilities because they don't have facilities. Then it's not being drawn by the, the, the beautiful church sign that's out front. There is no church sign that's out front. There's a little placard that is stuck in the ground on Sunday mornings. It says, this is where this, these people are meeting. And... Um, so I'm, I'm sitting basically where, where, where David is, and uh, in front of me, there's this, there's this dad, okay, and he's got this little girl, and just, this little girl, man, you can just tell by looking at her, she's just got fire in her eyes, you know, she's just, she's just one of those little kids that um, is always, I mean, the world's an adventure to her, and... Um, so she's not really getting a whole lot out of the sermon. She, she looks to me about five, okay? And, um, and she is highly entertaining to watch. And so I'm in the middle of my, uh, my friend's sermon, and I'm, I'm, I'm watching this girl. And her dad is so locked in on what is being said. He's paying no attention to her. I think her mom was in the nursery that morning helping out. So she's kind of got free reign. And uh, so she's... She's drawing pictures and she's showing them to the people around her, and they're 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 kind of laughing. She honestly, she is very very cute, and, um, and she keeps this up, and she's got everybody entertained pretty much. And um, now, on the one hand, I'm tempted to think, you know, boy, it'd be a whole lot better if there was a class for four year old girls that she could go to and be taught at her own level in her own setting and not have to sit there with the adults and yada, yada, yada. But on the other hand, I thought, no. You know what she, I mean, even though she would not be able to regurgitate the outline to you, she knew that she was able to be a bit of a clown 
Why? Because whatever was going on, it totally occupied her daddy's attention. And she's going to grow up and realize, I have a dad who when the Word of God is opened, he is arrested by that. Now, is that, is that a pretty good sermon? I think that is a really good sermon for a four-year-old girl to hear. Because when he parents her, when he instructs her, when he helps her understand categories such as sin, wrong, and categories of right, living for yourself, living for God, she will start to put the pieces together that her dad is not just playing the dad trump card on her, that her dad is under the authority of God's Word. He has to take these categories that God's Word creates. He is living his life by those categories, and he's, he is doing that with her. That's the benefit of a church that is under the authority of God's Word, because God's Word creates those categories for not just the church. It creates categories and a language and a structure and an organization for all of our lives. Without those categories, then, we are tempted to use the church for ourselves, whether we are in the pew or whether we are in the pulpit. And then it becomes this game of how can I manipulate you? How can I get this percentage of the congregation to go with me inside the conversation of the leaders? The decisions tend to be made then on, all right, what's this going to cost us? How's this going to affect so-and-so? Good grief, they give 30% of the budget. We can't do that. And how is that different than the world? You know, it's not. So, um, and that's where, you know, this, you know, bleaks into pragmatism and then, and then, it's, it really, really is, is messy. So, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, I'm going to begin um, taking you through this text with verse 10. But if you look at the first nine verses, where Paul says to Timothy, you know, here's a description of the last days, and we're tempted to think that the language that Paul uses here, lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. I mean, just a, everything that we're tempted to say, oh man, that look, that, that sounds like the news, you know, you see USA Today and that's all of it. Well, actually, he's not talking about the world, is he? When you look at the context, he's talking about this is what's going on inside of the church. So, how do you, how do you, uh, how, 
what do you do about this? And so that's why I want to spend the next 30 minutes on is how the word is sufficient for the long-term health of the church. And the first thing I want you to see is that it produces faithfulness in the lives of believers. So, after explaining what is going on in an unhealthy church, verses 1 through 9, and when Paul is writing about the last days, of course, he, and he's, think of this, he's, he's writing to Timothy. He's saying, Timothy, this is what's going to happen in the last days. And why is he writing this to Timothy? Because he is assuming that Timothy's going to be around for the last days. Okay? So, this isn't just Paul in his mind thinking 2,000 years from now. He's probably thinking closer to like 10 years from when he has, has, has written. But he's preparing Timothy for the increasing adversity. And of course, he would ex- you'd expect that because Paul's writing from Nero's prison. He's, he's writing. In fact, it's, it is very possible that by the time Timothy got this letter, Paul had already been executed. And he is now reading with you know, certainly a greater um, s- s- sense of uh, somberness. But I love how verse 10 begins. You, however. Okay, in contrast to these guys who are in it for themselves, where the congregation is driven by pragmatism, where everybody's just wanting to get a message that makes them feel good in the moment and helps them to be successful, however you define that. You, however. You, however, have followed... Look at those first two things. My teaching... Okay, what I believe, my doctrine, and my life, my con- conduct. And that, that sounds similar because early on, Paul told Timothy, watch your life, watch your doctrine. And he's able to say that because he says, Timothy, you've seen my life, you have seen my doctrine. And he goes on to give him a little bit more specifics about that. My aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and at Lystra, Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. That was Timothy's first short-term missions trip. He went with Paul on that first trip, and he was able to experience, all right, this is, this is what it means to be a church leader. And, of course, if you know anything about those experiences with Paul, he managed to you know, get himself either stoned or, or beaten or imprisoned um, or creating a riot just wherever he went. I mean, just the idea of, of going into a place kind of incognito and you know, just blending in with the culture and reaching people and just doing some good things and having this, this wonderful you know, reputation. That just never worked out for Paul, did it? Okay, and so Timothy, right from day one, he begins to see, wow, 
This is the effect that the Word of God has. It creates this huge gulf between those who believe it and those who don't. And there's a huge conflict that goes on between those two. And those who don't believe the Word are motivated to persecute those who do believe it. Now, think of this. So much of what's on this side of the board is driven by a desire to avoid pressure, avoid persecution at all costs. And when persecution comes... This stuff has no answer for that. If if you're motivated by personal gain, if pragmatism is your philosophy, if prosperity theology is your doctrine, when persecution comes, this this does not have staying power. This will you will cave. And your people will cave, your congregation will cave, particularly if if whatever works is what you are driven by, then when persecution starts coming in, will you change your message? (laughs) Absolutely. Hey, what do you want us to believe? We'll we'll just do that. And so all of the things that 30 years ago were convictional because they echoed what the people wanted, they're going to be changed. And so you can see why theology changes in, in in congregations or positions on particular matters shift from what looked to be biblical to what is now. Oh, you know, we can find where, you know, gay marriage is okay. We, we, we can be tolerant over, you know, some of these things. Why? Because the culture changed on it. And what was, what, what has been consistent has been a desire to echo the culture instead of, instead of to lead the culture. So when, when, when persecution comes and starts to put pressure upon a leader or leaders or upon a congregation, if they're driven by this, they have no answers. And, and, and this does not have sustaining power. So what Paul's saying to Timothy is that, all right, you have seen how in the most adverse circumstances... You, you have seen the, the effect of the Word of God in my life. And at, at the worst times of persecution, what did the Word do? It produced faithfulness in Paul's life. And it wasn't, he, he was not a robot. And he, he felt things deeply. You ever read the book of First or Second Corinthians? Uh, is the, I think Second Corinthians is probably the most challenging book to outline. <laughs> you know, when I when I try to preach through books, I try to outline those books. Second Corinthians, try to outline that thing. Be, why? Because it's the most emotional book I believe that Paul wrote. I mean, he is just like he is like this in that thing. He's not a robot. He feels the rejection of. The, the, the Corinthian church. 
He, he feels the things that have taken, they, 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 they affect him deeply. But at the end of the day, the brother's pressing on. Even, even here, even here in 2 Timothy, I'm not going to get into it, but I think it's in chapter 4, verse 16, when everything that Paul had wanted, all the way back in Jerusalem, what did he say? I appeal to Caesar's court. And he finally gets there. He finally gets the moment he wants. And, and what he's hoping to do, I think, is provide some safety for the church. I think he's trying to get to Caesar's court, not just for himself. Paul was never driven just by himself, but if he can get, if he can get the Roman government to sanction the church, that will go so well for others. So he finally gets to Nero's court, and what does he say? Nobody stood with me. I was there all by myself. Wow. And yet, you do not get ever from Paul this idea that I quit, this stinks. I mean, these people I've poured my life into, they don't even show up at court with me. I am, I am totally alone. What, what do I get for following Jesus all these years? What do I get for all of these bruisings? How has this benefited me? I end up in a cold, dank, dark prison. None of that. None of that. Because the word, Timothy, you, you, you've seen its effect. It produces faithfulness in the life of, in the life of Paul. Now you look at the next two verses. And there's a, there's a contrast again. And he's saying, okay, you see the effects, Timothy, of sin that's not, of, that, that is not in a life that's not sustained by the Word of God. And verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted, evil people and imposters. They will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Let's jump to the third one here. And just as verse 10 also begins with that contrast between verses 1 through 9 and really Paul's life, so then in verses, verse 14 begins with that contrast between the, this category and, and Timothy. And he's saying, Timothy, you've experienced the power of the word in your life, you've seen its effect. Timothy, look at your life. Verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So here's what I imagine happened. Timothy's mother was a Jew. Timothy's father was a Greek. Paul talked earlier in the letter to Timothy about his grandmother, his mother. And so I'm guessing that Timothy was likely raised going to the local synagogue. And because he 
heard from a child the sacred writings. And it's not like every home had their own copies of the Torah. The, um, you, you had to go to the synagogue to hear the word as it was, it was read. So probably Timothy, you know, like the four-year-old little girl, you know, grew up just going and, um, and sitting and listening. And uh, eventually, at some point, he began to understand the storyline. And he'd heard, he'd heard the law. He heard about his people. He heard about the problems. He heard about sin. But it wasn't until Paul came to town that Timothy heard the rest of the story. But what had the word done? What had the preaching of the law done? What had the reading of the Old Testament done? It had prepared him. It had made him wise for salvation. What's wisdom? Wisdom is knowing how to respond in a given situation. Wisdom is being prepared for what comes. So when you're in a crisis, you appeal to a wise person. Why? Because they know how to, they know how to respond. So when the word, the sacred writings, the Old Testament, have made you, Timothy, wise for salvation, they had prepared him. So Timothy knew he had been prepared. He knew what the problem was. He just didn't know what, what the solution was. He heard, he heard Paul say, whoa, okay, that's how the whole thing fits together. That's, he, and, and Paul's saying, Timothy, you know the effect of the word in your life. Now, brothers, you and I can echo with that. You know the effect of the word of God in your life. You know when either you have been reading a particular text or you have heard a particular message somewhere and God absolutely wrecked you in a moment. You will, you don't ever forget that. You remember when there were things that you heard and all of a sudden, wow, I never saw it like that before. And somebody else they read the word, you know, and there's, there's no effect with it, but you have been impacted by the word. And you know its authority. You know its effect. You know the change that has taken place in you. And so what Paul is saying to Timothy, he's preparing him, he's preparing him for what he wants Timothy to faithfully do. And he is reminding him, why would you? Why would you be in it for personal gain? That's not going to do anything. Why would you shelf the Word of God and, and just try to do things that work in the moment? That's not going to have any effect upon you. What's affected you deeply, Timothy? Ah, it's the sacred writings. It's been the Word of God. It's been the Gospel. So, and you can see where he's leading with that, all right? So, what he gets then to, verse 16 and 17, the whole word creates a healthy church. All Scripture is breathed out by God. All of it, all of it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. 
Now, if I had another whiteboard, okay, I've already used up this one, okay, I would, I would draw uh, quadrants. And on what you have with that text is Paul saying, okay, all right, what the Word does, it tells us what not to believe and it tells us what to believe. And it tells us what not to do, and it tells us what to do, <laughs> really. And so, what is the end result? The man of God is thoroughly equipped. You, you know what to think, and what not to think, and you know what to do, and what not to do. And you see those categories that the Word of God creates. And so, and, and so just in the instruction of the Word of God, you, you, I think in terms of those quadrants. And so, there are times in which... Okay, when I'm when I'm when I'm instructing people, whether it be publicly or privately, that I have a responsibility to say, "Here's what we believe," and here's what we don't believe. Now, in saying, "Here's what we don't believe," I have to say, "And here are some of the voices you dare not listen to." Okay, but when you do that. Okay, people get a little upset. Yeah, they do. But those are the categories that the Word of God has created. And so I have to speak in terms of those categories. All right, so what did Paul say? Um, I mean, he talked about Alexander the coppersmith, didn't he? He said, the guy's done me much harm. Why is he naming names in that setting? Because he is telling Timothy Timothy, watch out for that guy. And Timothy, you have got to warn your people about that guy because he is in, he is in this quadrant of what not to believe, not what not to do, and what not to do. Oh, oh, that, okay. And that helps people get those particular categories. So, for example, um, reprove. Re- re- reprove. Um, oh, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me, let me back up just a little bit. Um, let's go on to... I, th- I think I've talked about enough of these other things. Let's, let's move on. Number five. Number five. So, these other things, here's what you are to know, but Timothy, this is what you've got to do. You have got to preach the Word. And if you're going to preach the Word, you have to be ready to preach the Word. That's why you study the Word. And you have to preach the Word in season and out of season, which means there's, there's never been a time when the Word of God is out of season. You just have to do it all the time. And... 2 Timothy 4, look at verse number 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is able to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season. And then he breaks it down. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. I don't think that the complete patience and teaching is just linked to exhort. I think... It's linked to the reproving, the rebuking, and the exhorting with complete patience and, and teaching. What does it mean to reprove? It means to correct. Um, and 
reproof is out of season right now, except on Twitter. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's, that's another con- conversation, isn't it? Um, so, because reprove is, is not tolerated by our culture, then we're tempted to think it's not tolerated by our people. And so when we minimize, when we don't, when we don't use the Word of God and what it says to reprove, then, then here, here's what happens, okay? Um, we eliminate the entire category of sin, even in our own thinking. And here's how it shows up, for example, in parenting. This, this is what parenting sounds like, all right? Here's, here's what I hear in Kroger at the checkout line when the kid in the cart is going bananas, okay? And, and, and obviously, uh, the checkout line at Kroger or Meyer is, um, is demonic. There's, there's no doubt about it, okay? Because all of, you know, stuff is placed within the hand reach of a little kid. And so, and they, and, and, and they know that full well. And the kid, you know, can threaten to, you know, blow the place up and, you know, mommy or daddy will give in, you know, in, in, in order to um, appeal to the kid not to make a scene. But here, this, is, this is what I hear. Okay, honey, 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 honey. We we don't do things like that because, well, it's just not it's just not appropriate. You're better than that, and I'm sure you didn't mean to do that. So let's pretend that this didn't happen, and we will try again and do better next time. Okay, that's that's what parenting sounds like in in our in our culture, and the reason for that. And even in our churches at times, because there's no sin, there's no confrontation of rebellion, there's no recognition that what that evil heart, little evil heart is doing is rejecting the authority that God has established in that little one's life and rejecting God who has established that authority as well. And so without that clear category that has been formed by the Word of God, what are you left with? You are left with a very, very pragmatic approach even to parenting, which means we're just going to try to make it through this situation without any blood on the floor. I will do whatever I have to do to appease my kid in the moment. Well, we don't help our people parent well if we don't use the categories that the Word of God does. If I, if I see in the text reproof and I soften that down, or if I use different words even. I loved what Mike said last night, is that every word that was written was spoken by God. So, if I think I need to kind of soften the language a little bit, that's pretty arrogant, isn't it? Because I'm saying, I need to help God find better words. <laughs> that's pretty bad. And when I, in whatever category I come up with, whatever terminology I come up with, is not going to be as good as God. So, 
where the text reproves, I need to reprove. And, and then what does the text do? What, what are you supposed to do with the text in preaching? Rebuke. <laughs> so if, if reprove is confronting somebody and saying, all right, no, you can't do that. What rebuke is, it's putting action to the reproof. So it's like this. Let's say there's, there's a guy in, in my church who's just really, uh, he, he's really struggling with alcohol. He's a believer, trusts Christ, but that has been um, something that had, has had a hold on him for a long time. And love the brother, pray with the brother, encourage the brother, reprove Reprove, reprove, you know, hey, you, you, can't, you can't do that, all right? We're going to come alongside of you. We are going to uh, admonish you. Uh, we are going to reprove you. But if that doesn't work, you know what rebuking is? Rebuking is going over to the brother's house, knocking on the door, letting ourselves in, okay, going into his refrigerator, and taking out all of the beer and whatever else is in there and pouring it down the drain while we sing in Christ alone. Okay, that that's that's rebuking. It's 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 taking action, and and you think, but people would actually, yeah, because that's a category that God's word has created, and it helps us understand this is what life looks like for the people of God. We we get involved that much because we take things that seriously, and then of course exhorting with long suffering. Exhorting with patience, exhorting, um, recognizing that this is something over the long haul. So, brothers, in in conclusion, what I what I can say is that I didn't have all of this figured out at all when I thirty years ago became a pastor. I knew what kind of a church I didn't want to have. I didn't know. I knew basically that I just needed to preach the word and I had a congregation that didn't know all of these things either, but they knew enough to say, we'll follow, we'll follow the word. And through the years, when difficult situations came up and they came up pretty quickly because there had been a lot of pragmatism, there had been a lot of personal gain, there was a lot of things going on in the lives of even the members that was blatant, unrepentant sin, and it had to be addressed. And I'm 29 years old. What chance do I have at 29 years of age with an older congregation getting them to quote-unquote follow me? No, not a chance. But follow the Word? Ah, that's a different thing. And so, as I would just preach expositionally starting in chapter 1 verse 1 and go to the end of that particular book over and over it was the spirit of God who brought the issues up not me I wasn't doing topical series where the congregation was saying hmm I wonder who he's after today wonder why we're doing it no it's just you just faithfully preach the word and God keeps bringing up those issues and then as you seek to be faithful to reprove or rebuke or exhort or that quadrant of what not to believe, what to believe, what not to do, what to do. Then you can appeal to one another and say, 
What kind of people do we want to be? You know, you got a brother here who's been living in unrepentant sin, who claims to be a brother. Not really sure he is a brother, but he's in a position of leadership, and he just dares you to do anything about him. Yeah, that was my life. Dared me. They're going to vote you out before they'd ever vote me out. So literally what he told me. What, what am I going to do with that? Just the Word. Let the Word, let the Word keep doing its work and then saying to the church, what kind of church do we want to be? What kind of people do we want to be? Do we want to follow the Word or do we want to be intimidated by this? 30 years later, the Word wins. <laughs> and, and, the, and the fruit of that is, is a congregation that even when it gathers together to worship, okay, what, what drives us even in our worship it's not trying to figure out all right, what songs are going to make Phil happy, what songs are going to make Dave happy, or any of that, that, that nonsense, okay? And trying to pragmatically approach things. No, it's the Word. And, the, and, and so we know we sing the Word, we pray the Word, we preach the Word, we read the Word, we hear the Word, we respond to the Word, and we, see, and we seek to go out and do the Word. It's the Word. The Word, the Word, the Word, the Word. And over time, because the hero of the Bible is Jesus, then the congregation smells a little more like Jesus now than it did. So, whether you are the person behind the lectern or behind the pulpit, or you are the person who's encouraging those that are in this role, what you either do or what you expect to be done can really have a huge influence on helping the Word shape the life of a congregation. And the Word, only the Word, is sufficient for the long-term health of it. Lord, we do thank You that You have made Yourself known. You have come. Yet, we weren't on the earth 2,000 years ago when You came. We didn't get to see, even as Peter said, Your transfiguration and see You in Your glory. But, as Peter said, what we have is even even more amazing even. We have Your Word. We have Your great and precious promises. So, I pray that our conviction of the effectiveness, the efficaciousness of Your Word will be even deeper um, because we see even from the warnings of Paul to Timothy, even from the example of Paul to Timothy, from the fruit in Timothy's life that we will see and be recommitted to pursuing the Word for the long-term health of the church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.